Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment... Dr. Rodney Lynn, Georgia State University's newly appointed dean for the School of Public Health, will join me and we'll get his thoughts on how this pandemic has amplified the importance of public health policy and other issues. Also, a new study reveals what they call a hidden toxic chemical in cosmetics, and it's called PFAS. But first this, Georgia's House Committee on Legislative and Congressional Reapportionment continued to hear from the public Tuesday evening for in-person public hearings regarding redrawing the state's election districts. Now, we all know the General Assembly must redraw the districts every 10 years. That's because of changes in population and to balance what they call population changes. This time, the public gave comment in Forsyth County at South Forsyth High School, Laura Simonson told the committee her county is not fairly represented. Forsyth County for a very long time has been disenfranchised as a county. And that may seem odd because everybody looks at Forsyth County as a, as a, a, a place that is wealthy, a place that is successful, a place that has good schools and, and a good community. But what we do lack is actual representation at the state and the federal level. Now, 13-year-old David Horton Jr. told the committee to be mindful of what is considered fair representation when redrawing district lines. Now, as it is drawn right now, my, my district, Senate District 55, is split between parts of DeKalb County and parts of Gwinnett County. Now, as a citizen of Gwinnett, I'd hate that because it makes it exceptionally harder for our state senator to advocate for solutions to problems specific to our community in Gwinnett such as the 9.2% of us who currently live below the poverty level. And having a split district makes it hard on us as community members and leaders to effectively lobby our legislators on behalf of our community and Gwinnett citizens. Now, lawmakers are holding nearly a dozen of these public comment meetings all over the state throughout the summer. In other news, UGA running back great Herschel Walker is going to make a Georgia Republican challenge to Senator Raphael Warnock Well, that's according to former President Donald Trump. Trump was a guest on the new conservative radio program, the Clay, Travis and Buck Sexton show yesterday. Trump said Herschel Walker told him over dinner he was going to run. However, there's been nothing official from Herschel Walker confirming a Senate run. And finally. Yes. Seven on the shot clock. Murder. I love Marv Albert. Yes, it was a total team effort for the Atlanta Hawks last night at State Farm Arena. The Hawks' victory brings their NBA Eastern Conference Championship Series to two games apiece against the Milwaukee Bucks. Point guard Trey Young didn't even suit up for the game due to a bruised bone in his foot. Game five is in Milwaukee tomorrow night, and regardless... Regardless of that outcome, fans will have one more opportunity to cheer for the Hawks back at State Farm Arena for Game 6, which will be Saturday night. I guess we'll all just say, keep believing. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Since last year, I know it's hard to count how many times I've asked guests to reflect on the COVID-19 pandemic and what this moment in history means moving forward. Lessons learned, if you will, and what's been revealed or amplified in terms of already existing inequities within public health and governing policies. And that's at the core of this next segment. Recently, Georgia State University named Dr. Rodney Lynn professor in the Department of Health Policy and Behavioral Services, Behavioral Sciences, to Dean of the School of Public Health. And Dr. Lynn has also been the, he was actually the interim dean since 2019. Dean Lynn, thanks for taking the time. Congratulations. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rose. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you. Well, let's begin with this moment. What has been your biggest takeaway as a health scientist throughout this pandemic? Well, you know, obviously this has been a, uh, unprecedented in our lifetimes in a very difficult uh, period. I mean, you touched on it in your comments, just uh, how this pandemic has illuminated uh, inequities uh, that we, we have in society and the need for, uh, for all of us to uh, take action to address those inequities. In the School of Public Health at Georgia State, this is really a, a primary area of focus for us and the research we do and the training we do of students uh, so, you know, we, we feel uh, there's a lot we have to contribute to this uh, to this moment. You know, what st- also struck me, Dean, was that and, and I'm obviously I'm not in this field, but in talking to so many public health officials, folks from scientists, to researchers to physicians, you know, at the core, everyone talked about what is the mission of public health. So are we talking about delivery of services and providing the health needs to the masses without barriers. It seems like it's such a simplistic mission, but there are all, there's been these existing barriers. You could even say for more than a century. So why in 2021 pandemic or not, are we still having these conversations? Yeah, well, if, if we take anything away from this pandemic, I hope it's the need to invest uh, in the public health infrastructure uh, one of the reasons that we've had such a challenge in responding to this pandemic is because of decades of underinvestment in public health, and that was really costly. Uh, it, it's hard to really be fully ready for a, a pandemic of this scale, but we could have been and should have been much better prepared. Uh, one of the, the, the real challenges here is a lack of a system. I mean, that's the problem. We have fragments of a system, uh, and so I'm not sure we have learned the lessons from this pandemic and that's my greatest fear as we uh emerge from it uh is that you know we we are just trying to get through it and move on uh and the question of what did we learn and how can we be better prepared in the future uh that we're not really tackling that question uh as as much as uh we should uh and i'll give you some examples are we better prepared to connect public health departments that you mentioned with healthcare facilities, hospitals, mm-hmm. universities, and other public and private sector uh, you know, uh, organizations like CVS or, or Walgreens. So we had so much trouble scaling testing last spring in early 2020. I'm not sure we've created a system to actually address that problem if we were faced with a pandemic again next year. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example uh, of the, the challenges we're, we're faced with. You're not alone. As a matter of fact, I want to read to you something from the National Academy of Medicine that I read earlier. It was a discussion, a discussion paper authored by several in the medical community. And this is what this is what stood out to me. Quote, yet as the need for robust public health infrastructure has grown, federal investment in public health capabilities has declined with health departments operating for decades under persistent and widening resource gaps. Close quote. That pretty much sums up what you just said. Yeah, and the amount of criticism that was directed toward health departments and health department leadership, when in fact, from a capacity standpoint, they just never had what they needed. And so 
you know, we at Georgia State uh, had to respond as well. And in many ways, I think about it almost like a, a small health department, uh, you know, responding to testing and, you know, now vaccination, data management, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, last spring and last summer, no one was coming to rescue you as a health department. There just wasn't the capacity in the system. So uh, I hope going forward, we've seen some increased federal investment. Uh, I'd like to see uh, additional state level investment to ensure that uh, we're actually building uh, the infrastructure and the personnel uh, that has uh, you know, really been uh, under, it's been under resourced for far too long. Before we get into how you all at Georgia State School of Public Health responded and, and partnered with other entities, I do just want to take a moment to talk about those missteps through your lens from a national public health policy in responding to the coronavirus. You know, but what, what are those top two for you? And missteps is, I think I'm being well, yeah, fair. I, thanks for that question. I, I think that number one on my list would be a lack of federal leadership. Uh, I think there were some real problems, both in terms of misinformation, uh, a, a lack of willingness to take the pandemic seriously, to communicate honestly with the public. Uh, I'm not sure I have to go to number two. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that, that just really uh, is fundamentally uh, the greatest problem that we faced. And even now, as we look at uh, the reluctance of some people to be vaccinated and the, the continued misinformation out there. Much of this was seeded very early in the pandemic uh, and the creating of uh, sort of two camps where wearing a mask became uh, a political act uh, more than anything. So, you know, that really is a, a major uh, impediment to advancing good public health work. Well, Look, Dr. Dean Lynn, at the time of this conversation, COVID-19 deaths in this nation listed at about 604,000 people. Did all those folks have to lose their life, you think, because of some of those missteps or that misstep you talked about? Well, as I said, the pandemic was always going to be a challenge. We just hadn't seen anything at this scale in our lifetimes. Um, but I do believe we could have done much better in terms of the number of deaths uh, and the number of cases that we mm -hmm. uh, have seen. Uh, we're at a much better place right now, but uh, in many ways, the amount of damage that was done, uh, it, it, it's, it's really disheartening because the lives that were lost, um, th those families um, will, will have to suffer through and li live with that. Uh, going forward. And uh, unfortunately, the deaths didn't occur equally, you mm -hmm. know, across our population. So in many cases, those that uh, had the greatest vulnerability uh, in society are those that um, have suffered the most. And I mean, uh, low income communities, uh, African American uh, and uh, Latinx communities. Uh, and one of the things we're seeing now is in rural communities, a, a reluctance to um, you know, avail themselves of vaccination. That's true as well in the minority population. So there is much work to be done because uh, I worry that uh, too many believe that this is this pandemic is over uh, and it has the potential to rear its head again in a way that is very damaging. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Rodney Lynn, Lynn excuse me, Lynn. He's the Dean of the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Let's talk about how you all responded, because also besides educating future health scientists, you all wanted to be part of the whole the holistic approach, the entire approach to dealing with this pandemic. What did you all do? Well, you know, I'll talk about two things. Uh, one is um, from a university perspective, uh, we, ha we had and continue to have a uh, coordinating committee uh, to respond to COVID. Uh, and that committee has dealt with things like policies and procedures around classes, moving online, social distancing. But we've also, you know, in, in you know, worked with our medical director and, and had to stand up testing uh, on the different campuses of Georgia State, um, you know, case investigation and contact tracing units, 
um, you know, data management and reporting. And then we were, we were recently are we are a vaccination site. Mm -hmm. So the work, the staffing, the logistics of all of that, the communication, uh, which is something we are busy working on right now, I'm sure we have the right communication campaigns to encourage uh, and educate people, our students, uh, faculty, staff around vaccination. So it's um, in many ways, I think, similar to some of the work that our, our, our local health departments have been doing, but we've been focused on on campus. Um, additionally, just from a research standpoint, the School of Public Health has been very active. Uh, we've been forecasting uh, the, the, the pandemic uh, since the very beginning, uh, not only here in Georgia and the US, but in other countries as well. Uh, we have a number of funded projects that are focused on uh, engaging the African-American community, uh, training nursing homes, uh, and more recently working with uh, local cities and counties around uh, vaccine uptake. And I, I can talk more about that um, if, if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Inform our listeners. What was that about? Yeah, we, 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 um, we have funding. Uh, we have a CDC-funded prevention research center at, at the School of Public Health. Uh, we had this before the pandemic. And we've been able to get some resources through CDC to work in the city of Clarkston, uh, which is uh, you know, has uh, immigrant, refugee, mm -hmm. and native-born African-American uh, residents. And so we're working to you know build the communication to overcome the barriers that are being faced by uh, the population, uh, and meeting people where they are really to to ensure that we do what we can to increase uh, vaccination. We're also doing this. We're just uh, about to get notice uh, of an award with uh, Fulton County mm -hmm. and their health department. So we'll be working in partnership with them to do much of the same. And uh, and that team, you know, has capacity to to respond to individual homes and to you know really work to to go to the people uh, and really ensure that uh, we are doing all we can to address people's uh, barriers, uh, uh, questions, concerns. Uh, and uh, do all we can to promote increased uh, vaccination in our uh, communities. I want to shift for a moment, Dean, and talk about something else that was re revealed very early in the pandemic. And that was for many public health departments, the importance of, and you sort of touched on it, but what we would call modern health data infrastructure. And mm -hmm. especially as it related to implementing electronic case reporting of the virus. And I know for a lot of folks that had on this program right here talked about for many states, just the infrastructure in terms of being able to capture the reported number of cases, being able to, obviously we now have a dashboard, but being able to get this information out to the local health departments, there just wasn't a connection there for many states. And many of them had to build this infrastructure from scratch, so to speak. That's exactly right. And, and you know, that's, this, this is a great example of an area where we need investment to ensure that we have this infrastructure going forward, because in many cases, people were trying to build it uh, in real time. And what that meant is that there wasn't good information until it was up and running and tested and uh, all the bugs worked out. And that can take weeks and months. So, you know, not only is it important for us in, in the School of Public Health and uh, across our university to be training uh, individuals to, to go, you know, provide that expertise. Uh, but it's also important that we have uh, funding from government and, and private sector as well to support uh, that sort of infrastructure. Uh, because without it, you're flying blind and uh, it's very difficult to intervene and, and do what is our core mission in public health, which is prevention. You can't prevent if you don't know what's happening. Our epidemiologists uh, have to have data mm -hmm have to see what is happening on the ground to be able to uh, intervene. Does that mean that maybe some years from now, it could be next year, it could be a couple of years, it could be five years, that because of this, this this fractured infrastructure that more data then comes out that reveals either a much higher percentage of folks who actually contracted the virus, folks who died from it, or any other population that might have suffered, you know, was at a greater risk. In other words, the data could be revealed some years from now that really then paints a more grim picture than it already is for what we've been dealing with with this pandemic. I don't have any doubt that there will be um, long-term analysis of the data that emerges uh, from this pandemic. It's happening now. It will continue to happen 
we will get better on a better understanding of the true uh, scale, reach, and impact uh, of this pandemic. And I'm pretty confident in saying that it will far surpass what we believe it is today, mm -hmm. both in terms of uh, deaths, disability, uh, and number of people that uh, were uh, infected. So, um, you know, that, that that's, um, there, are, there are limitations that we've had to live through in terms of our data systems. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have other ways of looking at deaths, you know, and so we already know that the, the death uh, uh, total is greater than uh, the number that we were counting. Uh, so, you know, I, I fully expect that there are going to be lesson, more lessons to learn uh, for, for us in public health and as a society uh, going forward. Let's talk about you and your your new role. Are there some initiatives that you want to spearhead within the Department of Public Health there at Georgia State? Well, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm first, you know, really honored to have the opportunity to, to lead the school. I, you know, have uh, been a faculty member uh, in the school for um, many years and I uh, have a great uh, affection for Georgia State for its unique role in uh, really serving uh, first generation students, uh, minority students, uh, and really being an engine of social mobility. So uh, for me, this was the right place uh, I'm a native, uh, you know, I've grown up in Atlanta and, uh, that mean you, you know, rooting for the Atlanta Hawks? Of course, of <laughs> course. And, and, uh, you know, I'm from South DeKalb and, and really, uh, just delighted to continue to, to be a part of the Atlanta community. Um, you know, as we go forward, uh, we will, you know, really engage in some strategic planning, but I will tell you just in terms of my, uh, you know, vision and aspirations for the school. Uh, you know, I really want to ensure that we leverage our assets to improve the health of communities in Georgia and beyond. And, you know, there are a couple of things that, that I'd, I'd like to see us do. One is to elevate experiential learning for our students uh, such that they are, you know, we have a, more internships and opportunities at public and private organizations. We're doing more service learning and really important, uh, having opportunities to partner with the neighborhoods and communities in, in Atlanta, uh, around the GSU Stadium, mm -hmm. Summer Hill, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, so some of the communities that we've had an opportunity to work with in the past, but want to deepen those uh, connections uh, and uh, relationships. So, you know, that, that's certainly um, a high priority. Uh, strengthening the public health workforce. We, we've spent a lot of time talking about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing record numbers of uh, applications to our, our programs, uh, undergraduate and graduate. Uh, and so, you know, I invite those interested in a career in public health to, to look us up and come see us um, because we, we feel like we have a really important role to play, not only in strengthening the public health infrastructure, but also in ensuring there's diversity uh, in that, uh, in the workforce. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is just, again, about education and training. I think there's a, a a new and emerging uh, interest in training in public health. And so not everybody may want to come for a full degree. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of corporations. There are a lot of uh, public health departments. There are a lot of health professionals who want uh, a certificate or some training that may not rise to the level of a full degree. Uh, if I you know, launch a certificate in infectious disease and pandemic preparedness today, you can imagine uh, mm -hmm. there would be a real demand for that. And we've uh, received a lot of um, outreach and interest uh, for that kind of training. Uh, uh, so we are, you know, I have a call later today with the state health department uh, about training. So uh, I, I'm really uh, optimistic about where we're heading as a school. And um, we have a lot of assets that I think will uh, serve us well and serve uh, uh, Georgia and the city of Atlanta as we go forward. Increasing the pipeline from Georgia State University, Dean Rodney Lynn from the School of Public Health. Dean Lynn, thank you for taking the time. Good conversation. We'll have to bring you back. Thanks so much, Rose. It's good to be with you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It was this news as shared by Novavax president and CEO Stanley Eric that could lead to another approved coronavirus vaccine. 
the vaccine works in 93%. If you look at just the variants, the vaccine was 93% effective. Now, this two-shot COVID-19 vaccine made by Novavax was used in trials when the alpha coronavirus variant, first identified in the U.K., was widespread here in the U.S. But now the Delta variant is now set to become dominant in the U.S. There's a lot of questions about the Novavax vaccine. And joining me now to talk all about this is Dr. Harry Hyman, Program Director and Clinical Associate Professor in Georgia State University's Department of Health Policy and Behavioral Sciences in the School of Public Health. You've seen him all over the place, CNN, MSNBC, and now he comes to Closer Look. Dr. Hyman, welcome. Thank you very much, Rose. Before we dive into discussing this new Novavax vaccine, um, here in our state, Governor Brian Kemp has signed an executive order that will end the COVID-19 public health emergency effective July 1st. Dr. Hyman, your reaction to that? Is that too soon, you think? Well, um, you know, I, I think ideally you'd have a, a phased approach to walking back some of the executive orders. The, the fact of the matter is uh, the governor had a lot more expansive power than he used in the first place. So as opposed to other states that took advantage of things like mask mandates uh, and other uh, efforts to, to reduce and mitigate the impact of the pandemic, um, our state uh, leadership chose not to do that in the first place. So at, at this point in time, um, there isn't much substance left to the uh, executive orders in place. I don't see much difference there, but I think we're we're at a time where we need to be very cautious about how we move forward. And then nationwide, President Joe Biden was hopeful for a 70 percent vaccination rate by the 4th of July. When you think about that, that was the, the goal. And right now where we are in this nation, which I think, depending on whom you ask, is maybe not quite 50 percent. But is it a major achievement anyway? that we've gotten at least 150 million plus fully vaccinated. Look, I think if you think about where we were a year ago uh, and the prospect of rolling out a vaccine, uh, the the kind of catastrophic impact this pandemic has has had, uh, how in many ways we didn't respond as a nation uh, or or, uh, in our state in in ways that we might have, um, I think it's incredible that we are where we are today. Um, I think the other thing it's important for people to realize when they see both national and state numbers Mm -hmm. um, is that there are tremendous differences both across the country and and within states. uh, And there are profound disparities and inequities in many of those numbers that need to be looked at. You know, and Dr. Hyman, now with this uh, Novavax and the other COVID-19 vaccines, we know the nation's come a long way. But based on what you just talked about, what significant changes do you believe are in order in terms of how we govern the structures of our public health institutions? What's been the, what do you hope is a takeaway through all of this? Well, I, I, I think there are a few important takeaways for me, Rose. One is the, the critical need to invest in public health infrastructure and workforce. Uh, for decades, we have, uh, as a nation and as a state, been underinvesting in public health, underinvesting in the kinds of systems that absolutely need to be in place and the workforce that needs to be in place to respond to a pandemic like this. So one of the reasons that uh, CDC at the federal level and our State Department of Public Health and local public health has has come under a lot of uh, criticism is for failure to respond quickly enough or substantively enough, but candidly, candidly, Mm -hmm. there, there weren't enough boots and resources on the ground. Um, So I think that that we need to really take this moment to invest in that infrastructure and workforce, not just for the short term, but for the long term. Um, I think the other thing that we're all aware of is that this pandemic, like every crisis, whether natural or health, uh, exposed the profound inequities uh, in our society uh, and the fact that um, communities that are disadvantaged socially, economically, and environmentally are also the ones that predictably uh, experience the worst outcomes in, in, a, in a pandemic or, or in a natural uh, crisis. And mm-hmm. we saw this in profound ways with COVID-19. And so even with this new vaccine, which could be approved, uh, another a vaccine here in the U.S., you reviewed it. We're hearing about 90 percent an effective rate. But can that make a difference, you think, in changing folks' mindset? And then also then, what then should states and on a local level, what should they do to try and get those who maybe didn't take the the other vaccines to maybe try this one if it's approved? Because maybe here in 90 percent, maybe that that matters to some people. What do you think? 
Well, I, I think I think it's it's tremendous that we have one more vaccine with very high uh, efficacy based on reporting from the company. You realize we haven't seen the formal reports, nor have they been reviewed by experts, nor has there actually been a submission to the FDA uh, for either an emergency use authorization or a more formal authorization. But the fact of the matter is the, the rate limiting step right now in the U.S. is not vaccine supply. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's putting resources in place to, to do uh, outreach to those communities um, with, with greatest needs and, and communities who uh, to date aren't, aren't being vaccinated at the same rates as others. Uh, you know, there's uh, Kaiser Family Foundation tracks this at a national uh, level uh, and at a state level. And, and it's very clear that, uh, for example, black and Hispanic communities, uh, other communities that uh, experience higher social vulnerability and mm-hmm. risk uh, have, have had a greater impact in terms of cases and deaths by the pandemic, but actually have vaccine rates that are lower. And there are both um, access barriers and logistical barriers that are a significant piece of this. And Dr. Hyman, given a study that was just released this week indicating that the life expectancy rate, I believe, was shortened by two years for African-Americans. And when you hear something like that and they're going to attribute it to COVID-19, when you hear those type of, of that type of data and then from testing to resources for at-risk communities to the vaccination rollout, how did Georgia do, you think? Well, I think I think Georgia did the way we would expect Georgia to do, which uh, candidly was not very good. Um, G- Georgia saw the same, if not worse, disparities that other states had in terms of the, the disparate impact of this pandemic. Um, and again, I think in terms of, of, you know, when you ask about lessons learned, um, we know that to uh, narrow and eliminate health inequities, we have to match resources to need, meaning that it may require greater resources um, going to communities with greater need. Um, and hopefully that will be a, a lesson that resonates uh, at the state and local level in our state. Uh, it appears to be resonating at the federal level. Um, I'm very pleased with um, the focus the, the current administration has had uh, on equity broadly uh, and health and racial equity in particular. Uh, and I'm hearing from colleagues at CDC and elsewhere that, that there are steps being taken to meaning, meaningfully integrate more of an equity lens uh, in, in the work that's going on. Well, Dr. Hyman, folks like you, folks over at the Morehouse School of Medicine, you know, everyone that we've talked to, we've talked to CDC officials, we've talked to Dr. David Satcher, everyone has talked about equity and ensuring you know, distribution as it relates to the vaccine. And everyone talks about barriers in terms of fair and equitable access for everyone in this country. But then the question that people sort of get stumped on is, or they have a different answer is, now what do we do about it? You know, I mean, for me, the answer is very clear. And I think that there are a lot of um, positive examples of what that looks like. If you look at um, what local public health is doing in Gwinnett, if you look at what local public health is doing in Fulton and in DeKalb, they are trying to maximize mobile units, uh, working with uh, community centers, uh, uh, church and faith-based organizations, with uh, community health centers to ensure that um, vaccine access is brought to the communities at, at, at greatest need. So we know what that looks like. Uh, we still need to do a little bit more work in terms of bringing that to scale. But I think the other thing is when you think about access to healthcare broadly, mm-hmm. um, our state continues to refuse to do uh, something that is, is, is very simple and, and, and that the federal government is actually willing to pay us to do. You're talking and about Medicaid expand, expansion. That's to expand Medicaid. I mean, you know, the, the idea that we will not only be able to do it for free, but we'll be able to do it for free and then get additional dollars to deploy elsewhere um, over the next two years. And, and, and we're still... Um, debating whether that's the right thing to do to me is, is, is unthinkable. As it relates to science and science has overall developed three vaccines authorized for use here in the U.S. It appears it could be Novavax is next. But what does this reveal about drug discovery and the pharma industry? I don't, not to put you on a political hot seat, but you've been there before. What does that say to you? Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I think, I, I think there's, there's, there, there's both the um, tremendous upside that 
um, with the support of government resources. And I think that's a really important qualification. With the support of government resources, we, we were able to uh, roll out not only an unprecedented development um, of these vaccines, but an unprecedented rollout. Uh, and people should be reminded that, that the technology for the mRNA vaccines, for the Moderna and the Pfizer, have been developed over decades at the NIH, something that requires our taxpayer support. So I think that's critical to understand. I, I think the, 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 the underside is part of, part of the barrier to global equity and to really getting our arms around the global pandemic uh, is patents. Uh, and and um, proprietary rights to pharmaceutical companies. And mm -hmm. I think when it comes to vaccines and other critical drugs people need to survive, we need to rethink that system in a, in a powerful way. And time will not let us to even talk about when we talk about fair and equitable access for every country in the world. Dr. Harry J. Hyman, Program Director and Clinical Associate Professor in Georgia State University's Department of Health Policy and Behavioral Sciences in the School of Public Health. We're going to have you back, Dr. Hyman. Good conversation as always. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rose. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Researchers announced this month what they're citing as substantial evidence of a toxic chemical referred to as PFAS that was found in more than half of some popular cosmetic products, despite not being listed on ingredient labels. Now, PFAS, the PFAS chemical is commonly added to increase water resistance and durability. You'll find out in a moment just how many products that we use throughout our lives contain this. And maybe you're wondering, well, is this problematic? Well, I'm going to ask senior scientist Tom Bruton from the Green Science Policy Institute and co-author of this recent toxic makeup report. Uh, researcher Bruton, thank you so much for taking the time. Are you with me? I'm here. Thank you, Rose. It's good to be here. Let's inform our listeners, since they'll hear this word quite a bit, and I've been using the acronym because I was practicing with Daniel, our producer, on just how to pronounce PFAS. But I'll let you give us the, the chemical term. Sure. PFAS, like you said, it's an acronym that stands for a, a group of chemicals called per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And I understand there are 3,000 variations. Is that true? You know, the latest number is that there are something like 9,000 different uh, specific PFAS chemicals. And they're called forever chemicals. Why? They're called forever chemicals because they have a special structure that makes them really persistent. So they, they break down very slowly in the environment compared to other chemicals, and, and they stick around. And because of that, they can cause problems. Hmm. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But how long has this chemical been around? You know, they were first invented back in the, in the 30s or 40s and have been growing in use ever since. And so coming into the segment, uh, you heard me mention that uh, water resistance and durability. So I'm imagining that this is found in so many products and even on clothing? PFAS are used in a lot of products, including some clothing. Yeah, um, especially things that are resistant to water, like rain jackets or stains, like, like clothes that are marketed as stain proof, that kind of thing. But they're also used in furniture, nonstick pans microwave popcorn bags and other food packaging, all kinds of places. I imagine also maybe in some roofing material as well? That's true. Uh, we, we did a study recently where we looked at all the different uses of PFAS in building materials. We found them in roofing materials. We found them uh, all the way down to the floors. You know, carpets were a big use of PFAS for a long time. I got to tell you, you're such a brute, and I think you're scaring a lot of people, but that's the whole point of this conversation. That's not my intent. <laughs> Listen, this is considered a toxic chemical, correct? So to your knowledge, are there any alternative or non or less toxic chemicals that can be used other than, than PFAS? There are, yeah, and it's going to depend on the specific application we're talking about. It might be a different alternative for a mm -hmm. popcorn bag than it would be for carpet. But well, there are alternatives out there. People should make popcorn the old-fashioned way over the stove like my dad did. <laughs> um, let me ask you, is, is the amount or over overall use of PFAS, is it banned in any other nation? I know you all focused recently here on the United States and Canada, but this toxic chemical, is it banned anywhere uh, throughout the world? 
You know, certain states here in the U.S. are banning specific uses of PFAS, like the use of PFAS in firefighting foam has been banned in a, num a growing number of states, food packaging in a couple of states. And over in Europe, uh, where they're usually ahead of us on chemical regulation, they're actually proposing to ban all non-essential uses of PFAS mm. starting in just a couple of years. So that would be uh, a big step. And in this most recent research, you and fellow scientists, you all tested cosmetics. How many different products, or did you primarily stick to a certain type of cosmetic, like a lipstick or a blush or a mascara? We purchased 231 different products from both the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did a variety of different types of products, including uh, mascaras, lip products, other eye products, foundations, concealers, uh, and different face products. Let me ask you this. How do you test or determine uh, what the amount of, of PFAS is in, in a product? And particularly, we're talking about cosmetics. How, do you all, uh, how are you able to test that? We use two different tests. The first test we use is uh, with a, an instrument called PIGI. It stands for Particle-Induced Gamma-Ray Emission Spectroscopy. I'm so glad you all use acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> PIGI sounds better, right? Yes. Essentially, this is a screening test where we can tell how much fluorine is in a product. And, and fluorine is not the same as PFAS but it's fluorine is a part of PFAS. And so we use that as an indicator of which types of products are more likely to contain the PFAS. And so out of those 231 products, was there some average amount? And correct me if I'm not giving a very scientific or even, you know, smart questionnaire, but uh, were you all able to determine, you know, what was the re results of, of all these products? How much does it, did it vary? Was it one product that had more amounts of it? Yeah, what we found is that overall, out of those 231 products, just over half contained what we call high levels of fluorine, indicating the probable presence of these PFAS. And it varied depending on what, what type of product we were looking at. So 56% of foundations, 48% of lip products, 47% of mascaras. And when we looked at things that were labeled as waterproof or long-lasting specifically, uh, the proportion that had high fluorine was a lot higher. So we we took that as a clue and took uh, a subset of those products and tested them further with a different type of test. I want to back up for a moment because now you, on a, a couple of occasions you've talked about high levels of fluorine. Educate us. Uh, is, that, is there a danger in having and absorbing that amount as it relates to PFAS? Uh, or? So fluorine itself is not necessarily dangerous, but it's an indicator of these dangerous compounds. And when we say high levels of fluorine, what we mean is that we think it's high enough that it's likely someone was adding some fluorinated chemical to this product on purpose. There are, uh, it's possible that in some of the products where we found low fluorine, but not no fluorine, that those chemicals were there accidentally uh, as, as trace impurities from somewhere in the supply chain. But when we say high fluorine, we think that they're being added on purpose. With this toxic chemical PFAS, we're going to get into the environmental concerns here, but in terms of health, are there dangers in, in terms of, we're talking about cosmetics now, so is there a danger to someone over a, a long period of time if they're using a particular brand of a cosmetic that has that high percentage of what you just talked about? Do we know, or we just don't know enough yet? Well, we know that the, the types of PFAS that have been studied the most are linked to a number of, of adverse health effects over time, including things like two types of cancer, developmental effects like low birth weight, damage to the liver and thyroid, increased cholesterol, uh, and even weakened immunity. So all kinds of effects. And, and so because exposure to these chemicals is linked to those harmful health effects, we want to minimize that exposure however we can. And so if we can get the PFAS out of cosmetics, that's going to be a good thing. We know the FDA does regulate cosmetics in terms of being safe for consumers, but the ingredients are not required, are they, on the labels or packaging? Is that correct? Is that also at the core of, of what you all are saying there needs to be a lot done in this area? Is that correct in terms of the labeling? Yeah, we think overall FDA regulation of cosmetics is weak. Mm -hmm. So the law that, that governs this has been on the books since 1938, and it hasn't been updated much since then. FDA uh, doesn't have the authority to actually approve the ingredients in cosmetics before they're allowed to go to market. 
And I also cannot tell cosmetics manufacturers uh, what safety tests to do to, to figure out if their ingredients are safe. Well, Instead, go ahead. Because I imagine someone just pulled over and said, wait, what? That is the role of the FDA to make sure the consumer is, is not at risk. You would think so. And for, for foods and drugs, other things that are under the FDA's purview, that's more the case. But for cosmetics, the industry is in charge of deciding which ingredients are safe. And the FDA is not even allowed to make industry um, tell them how they came to those decisions. I remember all the hoopla about saccharin and they can't. Uh, and I, OK, uh, let me get your thoughts on this, because I'm curious, to your knowledge, have any of the cosmetic brands responded to this latest research that you all that you worked on? We're in touch with a number of smaller uh, what are called clean beauty brands who are, mm-hmm. you know, do, do a lot of work to make sure that they're using safe ingredients and, and they're interested in working with us to understand our results and make sure that their supply chains are free of these chemicals. We haven't heard from uh, the, the big companies as mm-hmm. of yet. In your research, did you all, did you feel confident in naming some of these brands? Because this is based on your research. I know you have to be careful in terms of liable, but... Yeah, so we we made the decision not to single out specific products Mm -hmm. because we think this is an issue that's widespread. And we didn't test enough products to, you know, to get a full understanding of the full market. And really what we want to do is point out that this is a systemic problem that needs a a systemic fix. We did list the the, the brands of the chemicals that we tested, but we didn't say which ones came mm -hmm. back high or low. Well, then any idea how a consumer... Can they check? How would what would you recommend to someone listening? Says, well, I would like to check and see how much PFAS is in, you know, my mascara. Is there any way of of well, determining so you that? you alluded to this. Yeah, you alluded to this earlier that we we found that in all but one of the products we tested and found PFAS, there were no PFAS on the labels. So that's a, that's a problem. There's no way for the average consumer mm-hmm. to look at those labels and understand what's there. One thing that people could do is try to avoid products that are marketed as being long lasting, waterproof, durable, things like that. Because we found that those are the ones that are, that tend to be, uh, tend to have higher levels of fluorine than PFAS. Let's talk about briefly the environmental impact of PFAS here. Um, because I imagine if it's in, if it's in this packaging or if it's in all the other things that we talked about, that once it gets to a, a landfill or something like that, then that's a, that's problematic as well. Yeah, that's right. PFAS in water supplies is a huge problem around the country. Millions of people have PFAS in their water supplies at, at levels of concern. And it's possible that cosmetics are contributing to that because if you, you think about what happens to these products after you put them on your body, some of them get washed down the drain, go down the sewer to the wastewater treatment plant and, and get released into the environment that way. Or if they get thrown away, they'll go to the landfill it can come out of the landfill and end up in the water supply that way. And uh, downstream, someone might be using that water as their, their drinking water source. Well, and what about in production? Uh, in, in, I'm, I'm imagining there are factories here, there's, there are here in the United States that were producing some of these products that you've been talking about. So uh, the runoff from these factories, that's an issue as well? Yeah, you're right. The, the factories that produce PFAS are the biggest sources of, of contamination around the world, including some here in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, so those are known to be a problem. We don't know much about what happens at factories where the cosmetics themselves are put together, but that's another possible source of releases of these chemicals to the environment. And we should note there is a bipartisan bill, or at least it was, in the Senate that would ban the chemicals this chemical use in makeup, and actually it's called the No PFAS and Cosmetics Act. Um, how optimistic are you that that will actually gain some steam? We're really pleased that there's bipartisan support for this. We think it's a, it's a common sense bill, and we're optimistic that it might move because toxic chemicals in, in cosmetics and the products that we put on ourselves every day are, are something that everyone can agree we want to avoid. And before I let you go, uh, Tom, I want to just get our listeners a little bit more insight about what you all do. I think I kind of know at the Green Science Policy Institute there. Sure. Well, we're an NGO based out in California, and we work to reduce the use of hazardous chemicals. And one of the big ways we do this is by pursuing uh, or conducting scientific research 
and then trying to get that research um, into the hands of people who can act on it. So decision makers in government and business. Was there and a, also the go ahead. Need to know. Yeah. No, go ahead and finish. Um, that was it. Okay. I also wanted to know within this research, was there something that you all wanted to study? You wanted to study more or you didn't have an opportunity? I know you all stand by this research, uh, but was there something that you just couldn't get to that maybe you're going to follow up on in the future? Sure. One thing that we couldn't we, we, we couldn't figure out all the way was whether some of the fluorine that we measured could be what we call inorganic fluorine, which is a, a different type of chemical than the PFAS. So some of that fluorine that we were using as an indicator might not actually be PFAS. And it would be interesting uh, to look at that and further work. Well, Tom, I, I hope that we didn't depress people, but it is important information. Um, Tom Bruton is a senior scientist at the Green Science Policy Institute and co-author of a recent toxic makeup report regarding PFAS. We'll have a link on our website to the report. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you very much, Rose. And let us know what you think about what you just heard. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, or as always on social media, you can tweet me at wabe rose scott. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know, again, your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Coming up on tomorrow's program, a conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. We'll talk about the Delta variant of the coronavirus and why it's so concerning. And yes, the Peachtree Road Race is this weekend. We'll get some final tips, do's and don'ts as we check in with the Atlanta Track Club. Remember now, this is going to take place over two days. So we'll tell you where you can go and where you're not supposed to be. So it'll be a little bit different this year. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.